Today's episode will discuss Germany's economy and what it implies for Europe, by extension, the world, as well as organizing success among California's low-wage workers. What the situation in Ukraine has meant for the stock market versus you and me. And, despite the widespread protests of European farmers, we do not pay enough attention to agricultural work and working conditions, either in our nation or in many others. So this was an opportunity to compensate for that deficit by discussing a wonderful movement across Europe, led and motivated by farmers in those nations. And in the second part, I will discuss a study of some of the most egregious, unjust, and unfair aspects of the United States tax code as we approach the yearly tax paying season. Okay, let's get started. Germany. For the most of the last two decades, Germany has been Europe's economic powerhouse with the largest single economy, the fastest expanding, and a global impact much beyond that of most other European countries. But the situation has altered tremendously. Germany is impacted by a unique label, the sick man of Europe. Why? Because Germany, Europe's economic development engine, is stagnating. Germany is, if not in recession right now, so close that the German people can taste and react to it as the country's politics undergo a major shakeup, reminding many people of what they have seen in the United States over the last seven or eight years. Here are some of the symptoms and reasons why Germany is struggling, and by extension, Europe. First, not only is there no growth in Germany, but they are rapidly losing markets. They are rapidly losing their own industry. The word deindustrialization, which is the polar opposite of industrialization, is currently the most prevalent in German economic news headlines. It happens when you don't build new or expand factories and manufacturing. It's when you do the opposite, shut them down, don't replace them, and shrink them. And why? First and foremost, how does the war in Ukraine work? Well, the economic approach driven by the United States, with which Germany has collaborated, has been to impose sanctions against Russia. The most significant of these was the decision not to purchase oil and gas from Russia in the same manner as previously. Let's be clear. One of the reasons Germany has been so successful in the last 20 years is that it has the finest access in Europe to cheap oil and gas from Russia. That allowed the Germans to outcompete the French, British, and Italians. Yes, I know we've all heard this story. It is about the Germans, who are excellent technical workers, as well as efficient engineers. There is a little of that, but this was far more essential. They had inexpensive energy, less than the French had to spend to get energy from North Africa, the British from all over the world, and so on. Etzler and they forfeited that to join the United States in fighting Russia through Ukraine. They had to go from inexpensive to very expensive energy. Instead of inexpensive Russian oil and gas, they were forced to purchase liquefied natural gas from the United States at a much, much greater cost. This meant they had to charge extra for what they made in Germany. And as a result, consumers all over the world stopped buying German goods since they were now too expensive due to the Germans' increased energy costs. So they moved to other countries. This has a significant negative impact on the German economy. Then there was worldwide inflation, which was driven in part by rising energy prices. Prices increased across the board in Germany and Europe. And what did Germany's central bank do? Exactly what the reserve did. Increase interest rates. Was this the only method to cope with inflation? No, we've made that point several times during this presentation, but that's what they chose. And if interest rates rose, the cost of doing business for the German sector rose significantly. Not only energy, but also loans, currency, and credit. We're still not finished. The unification of West and East Germany provided a significant boost to the German population as trained, educated, and highly skilled Eastern German workers were integrated into a larger, unified German working class. Now that they've run out, the Germans are realizing that they're not producing the same number of babies as they used to. Do you know what they did? 
They ushered in waves of immigrants. Angela Merkel also opened Germany. Immigrants from not only Turkey and the Middle East, but also North Africa and elsewhere. Do you know what that did? This terrified the German working class that they would be replaced by immigrants. Should sound familiar because we have many similar things in the United States. And this disturbed German politics as the left wing of the working class shifted to the right wing, seeing immigration as a more immediate threat than the slow but frightening fall of German capitalism. Put all of these things together. Germany is facing significant challenges. They cannot sustain immigration. The working class will not accept it. They can't fix their labor shortage in that manner. Meanwhile, they are dealing with eye-catching mortgage rates and extremely high energy costs. As a result, Europe's engine sputters and eventually fails. It will cause significant changes in Europe, which is why I feel compelled to inform you of what is happening. The next update is a simple hats off. There is a new organization named the California Fast Food Workers Union. It's been a successful attempt that is now being driven by workers, notably black and brown Americans, in the fast food business, specifically at McDonald's, Pizza Hut, and a West Coast company named Jack in the Box. They've been quite successful. They collaborated with SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, which is part of the AFL-CIO, to develop this new cross-company alliance of fast food workers. This April, they began to celebrate their first victory. This union represents all fast food outlets and has a minimum pay of $20 per hour. They are guaranteed a minimum number of hours so that they can make a fair livelihood. You can no longer fire employees unless there is a legitimate reason, which must be specified. There cannot be reprisal against workers who unionize. This is the law in the United States. You cannot be fired for union activity, but they do so anyhow. Don't you know? They won't be doing it at those restaurants because they just signed off on it, and there will be legal consequences. And there are more. This is a significant step forward for unions in general, particularly for unions of low-income workers and service workers with high turnover who were previously regarded to be unionizable. Guess what? Unions can be formed anywhere there is a will. There is a way, and the unions have approved it again. As the third update of the day, I'd like to provide you with a simple statistic. I thought I'd try an experiment. How has the stock market performed? The conflict in Ukraine began in February 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine. Right up to the present, February 2024. Two years, roughly. I want you to look at how the stock market has performed over the last two years and compare it to your own performance. You're my listener and spectator. The standard and poor 500 index includes the 500 largest U.S. corporations. S&P 500. The S&M. P500 rolls from February 2022 to February 2024, 40%. So, if you bought a decently random sampling of the 500 largest firms, you'd be doing well. What you had in 2022 is now worth 40% more. And you, you, and you, did you perform 40% better? Are your assets 40% greater? Is your bank account 40% larger? No, I did not think so. Some people benefit from the battle while others suffer. Most of the rest of us have experienced inflation, which has eroded the value of whatever assets we had and made it more difficult to make ends meet. No, the war in Ukraine did not benefit us, but it did benefit the average shareholder. Remember that the top 10% of Americans own 80% of the shares. Someone is benefiting from the war. It's just not you or me. Finally, the farmers. Farmers are on the move all throughout Europe. They're placing their tractors on the roadways, otherwise the highways won't move. They are clogging the city. They are preventing trucks from entering and leaving Berlin, Madrid, Paris, and London. What's happening? The farmers are upset, and there are two lessons here. They are outraged that their livelihoods are being destroyed. When the price of energy increased, they had to pay more for the fertilizer they purchased because it is made from energy. 
they had to pay more to power their tractors that ran on energy. Meanwhile, in order to appease the masses of people who were outraged by food costs, the government prevented them from rising in a variety of methods. This forces the farmer to sell their goods at the same or lower price while incurring much higher costs. The farmers will not stand for it, and they will march to express their discontent. And you know what the politicians are doing? They must act or risk losing the farmer's support. Do you know what they are doing? They are utilizing taxes to provide minimal benefits to farmers. Do you know what else they are doing? They are easing environmental regulations to allow harmful chemicals back into food. Are they taxing the wealthy to address this issue? Not a whisper. No, they're going to harm nature and our ecological survival in order to help these farmers. That is incompetent politics, or worse. We finished the first half of today's show. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with our investigation of federal tax inequity. Welcome back, folks, to the second half of today's economic briefing. We'll continue with what we did in the second half of last week's program, which was to look at the federal tax structure of the United States, with a focus on the most unfair and unjust components. Look, I could take many programs and go over them all. I'm only picking a few examples to demonstrate how the influence of company and the wealthy has resulted in an unusual tax structure over time. That's why it's a large fat book every time the tax regulations for the next year are issued because so many special arrangements have been made to save money over here for these rich individuals, save money over there for these corporate interests, and so on. So the ultimate product is this strange concoction. I'm selecting items for you to consider that you may not have considered previously. So the first topic I want to discuss with you today is exemption. That's right. Written into the tax code, there are particular exemptions, categories of people who are entitled to make an income without paying any tax on it at all. Let me say that again. An income you make by working, by investing, you'll see I'm going to go over it. But unlike others, you don't have to pay any income tax on it at all or you pay a pay, excuse me, a very modest rate, much, much, much lower than everybody else. And I'm going to begin where you might be startled, I will begin with a private university. I'm going to pick one that I went to school at just so you don't think I'm picking favorites. Yale University is in New Haven, Connecticut. Yale University is one of the oldest universities in the United States, goes far back to colonial times when New Haven was a colonial outpost of the British Empire. And it was decided that because the people who settled there went to war against the local indigenous population, murdering them in vast numbers, making way for themselves that they were intensely religious people. In this situation, Protestant religious people, Christians, and they wanted to not only occupy the country, and eliminate the indigenous people, but they also wanted to create churches where there would be pastors, priests generating the religious activities they intended to engage in. The trouble was they didn't have much money. And so they came together and they said, well, a lot of us are farmers here in New England and Connecticut where New Haven is located and where Yale resides. We're farmers and we can pay a tax on the farming that we do and we're crafters and we're small merchants and we are what we were in the colonial days of the United States and New England. And we can afford to pay taxes because we do things that make money, but churches don't. They just don't. And if the churches had to pay the same taxes that we all pay, a tax on our land, the farmer had to pay a tax on our animals, a tax on the income they earn, if and when that was a tax that was levied. When they, all that was done, the decision was made by the local Christian settlers that they would give Yale University a tax exemption. Uh, and why? They were very clear. It's in the Constitution of Connecticut. The exemption was there because Yale would train young men to become ministers. And in order that there be ministers, because they couldn't imagine the church without them, they had to be trained. And in order for there to be trained, there had to be an institution that did it and it couldn't survive if it had to pay taxes. So they gave Yale a Connecticut institution a tax exemption in Connecticut because it produced ministers for the people in Connecticut. 
kind of logical if you think about it. Well, they got generalized. You'll never be surprised to learn that the people who got a tax exemption fought very hard in the intervening three centuries not to lose it. So by now, that federal tax code, not just Connecticut, but in all 50 states, plus the federal government, they exempt educational, religious, and often medical and charitable institutions from paying taxes. Yale is now a multi-billion dollar profitable corporation, but it still pays no taxes on its property or a very recently very small amount, much lower than it would have to if it were taxed like everybody else. Now it's become a rich people's exemption, and we're all supposed to pretend not to notice that that was never the intention when it started, and it shouldn't be there now. The richest people on earth send their children to Yale University. They can pay well. And then for those of you that are not religious, let me make sure you understand every church, every synagogue, every mosque, every religious institution in this country can and typically does apply for an exemption, which means if they earn money, they don't have to pay tax on it. Yale owns, for example, like many churches do, stocks and bonds given to them by parishioners, given to them by alumni, they hold these stocks and bonds. They earn dividends. They earn interest on them and on that income. They pay, you got it, no income tax or a very, very, very small amount recently enacted. The churches are subsidized. It means that the local church can use the services of the local cops, the local firefighters, the local folks who clean the air, the local people who teach everyone in the classroom of the elementary school or the high school. All the churches get all the benefits of all the public services, but they don't pay for them. You and I do, on our house, we pay a property tax. On our wages, we pay an income tax. On our stocks and bonds, we should we be so lucky, we pay taxes on the dividend income, the interest income, the capital gain. Oh yeah, we pay. They don't. Because they're a church, you may not understand it, but you, the American people, subsidize all religious institutions. Here's a question for you to ponder in the quiet moments of your day. If the United States government plus the 50 states, plus all the cities and towns, truly had churches and synagogues and mosques pay the same rate of taxation other local institutions do. Like the stores, like the homes, like the automobiles, like the businesses, and so on. How many people would go to church? How many churches would survive if they had to pay taxes? They're all subsidized. They none of them pay for what they get. When you hear some conservative tell you, I want these people to pay for what they get. Remember, that's the same person who's protecting the churches by never bringing up the fact that we require the American people through their taxes to subsidize all of those institutions. Yale, Harvard, the church, the mosque, the synagogue. They're all subsidized. We subsidize religion in this country, and we always have the next item. Again, I could spend an hour on it. We used to believe in something called the level playing field that every child born into this world should have an equal opportunity to develop their skills, their capacities, their passions, their knowledge, and go out there and contribute to the community and be accordingly rewarded. But of course, if you believe in a level playing field, you can't allow one baby born into this world to have a million dollars available and another one have nothing because the one with a million will get the better education, skill training, habits, medical care, personal care. You know this story. You don't really need me. So either you believe in a level playing field or you don't. Either you want people who are already affluent to have an advantage over those who desire, so that inherited wealth becomes the norm. So that rich people can make sure their kids are rich, but people who aren't rich will have that much harder bringing their kids into that class of folks. I mean, either you understand this or you don't. When I was young, only the first one or two hundred thousand dollars that you could leave to a descendant, your children, was free of taxation by the federal government. Today, a husband and wife right now in the United States can leave to their children $22 million tax-free. No inheritance tax, no estate tax on the first $22 bucks. You only have to start paying a tax on what you leave to your offspring above that. 
the first 22 billion. When you realize what it implies, that means that nearly nobody pays a state tax in the United States. Because between the 22 million, you can legally leave without taxes. And all the gimmicks that I will explain on another occasion that allow you to move money without becoming considered in the state you have to pay tax on. You put these two together, and the rich stay rich and the families become perpetual. We have a perpetual rich class in the United States. Not because that's natural. It never was. It's because those rich people have made the law written this way to help them do that. And you can't do that. And so you haven't been able to. And though you just suffer because remember what they don't pay in taxes you do. Government still has to spend the money, still has to fight the wars, still has to keep the roads. So if you don't pay because you're rich enough to get out of it, somebody else will. Today, but again. And now we come to the last one and I'll just begin here and we'll continue this next week just to keep it going. Social Security. What a boom puppy a lad is. Social Security for those of you who don't know. Money taken out of your pay. Hair frow of your wage. Half the employer matches. Now it might be a low rate for those who earn 10 or 20 or 30,000 and a much greater one for people who earn millions. That would be a progressive rate. It's how we arrange the income tax. But we didn't do it for the social security because rich people didn't want it. So it's a flat tax. Everybody pays the same. Very awful for those at the bottom who pay the same rate as those at the top. Good for those at the top, not for the bottom. As you will see when we go through it, that's the same story across the board. A system rigged as Bernie might say in favor of one and against another. We've come to the end of today's show. Please remember we are a continuing operation. Stay with us and as always I look forward to speaking with you again next week.